Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. And now here is Tom Hunt of AFP to get us started. Thank you, Marcia, and welcome to today's webinar, AFP's COVID-19 follow-up webinar to our survey that we recently released. With me today are Sharon Hayward-Laird, Head of North American Treasury and Payment Solutions at BMO, and Leanne Perkins, Assistant Treasurer at Ion Geophysical. Uh, Leanne, if you wouldn't mind, just talk a little bit about what your company does so the audience has an understanding of where you're coming from. Oh, thanks, Tom, and good afternoon to everybody. Ion Geophysical is in the oil and gas services sector. We are a publicly traded company, been in business for 51 years, headquartered in Houston, Texas. We are an innovative asset-like global technology company, and we provide and deliver powerful data-driven decision-making capabilities to our clients. We are in a highly technical field, so what's nice about us is we have about one quarter of our employees who have advanced um, scientific and technical degrees. So we have a lot of brain power in a niche market. We have 15 offices around the world, and we have a four-person treasury department here in corporate in treasury in Houston. Great. Thank you, Leanne. And just a little bit about the survey before we begin. I wanted to highlight that the survey was in the field, so uh, in, in for uh, out in the field for responses April 1st to April 10th. And keep in mind that was probably two weeks or three weeks into the pandemic. Um, A lot of Treasury departments at that time were probably working remotely. Uh, We had a great response rate from all of the Treasury practitioners that did respond. And we looked at three different areas. First was human capital changes, working capital slash liquidity, and then business continuity plan effectiveness. We want to make sure that we thank BMO for underwriting this survey and making it available for our members. So looking at our agenda today, we'll cover those three areas that the survey highlighted, uh, human capital being the first one. And before we begin, what we thought we would do is start off with a question, a polling question, since we know that most of you are either working remotely um, or you know, doing some remote work in some capacity, I just wanted to ask, does your treasury team have frequent check-ins with your respective supervisor? Uh, Either first answer is yes, weekly, second, yes, bi-weekly, three, yes, as needed, four, no, I'm furloughed, five, no, no set schedule. Leanne, I'm just curious, how often does your four-person team have check-ins? Well, I meet weekly with my boss, who's the CFO, and as needed, and it's been more frequent since we've been remote. And then I also meet weekly with my team, and as needed. And that's pretty much what we were doing before the crisis anyway. Gotcha. So do you, what kind of technology do you use? Is it like Teams or Zoom, or how do you Yeah, you phone call? We're not allowed to use Zoom. <laughs> so uh. we use Microsoft Teams, and we use Skype. And then we do a lot of um, WhatsApping, actually, when we're calling our um, international units. It's a free, easy way to do it. Yeah. Okay. So 
Um, RC, if we could go ahead and display the poll here. People can see it on their screen. Uh, the main answer looks like yes, weekly. Um, so that's, I guess, about about what you are mentioning, uh, Leanne. Um, so it's pretty consistent um, across the board. So with that, let's take a look, further look into some of the working capital changes. So what we saw for the most part, and one of the questions we didn't ask was about furloughing because it wasn't necessarily a, a, a well-discussed uh, topic among our membership, but at least at least half had already implemented a hiring freeze, uh, and 13% were at least planning for one. Um, over 50% had delayed the hiring of new employees or planning to, uh, and then 40 over 40% had uh, delayed capex. Um, how does Leanne? How does this compare with your guy with your company? I think this is very similar. Um, you know, we had a hiring freeze actually for. We went remote working because we had the oil and gas crisis hit us here in Houston. So yeah. we had the hiring freeze. Um, definitely delayed hiring new employees this year, and for sure delayed capex. So does so. Let's look at that delayed capex. What does that mean in terms of your company? Is it more like big projects are getting shelved? How about how does that impact finance and treasury? I think for us, it's more of a pause on big projects. We don't completely cut them off because we do have a lot of our projects that are long-term, so we wouldn't cut them off necessarily unless our clients decided to shelve those for good. So a lot of them are on pause. And on the finance side, we've had to delay some of the treasury projects we wanted to do such as um, bank consolidations in different countries around the world. So just really trying to concentrate on the here and now and protecting cash and liquidity as much as possible and really seeing kind of how Q1 irons out and then we'll take it from there. So really the overarching theme at our company is to put things on pause for now. Yeah, so, no, so your staff is still uh, everybody in Treasury is still working, so there's no furloughs, but I imagine that puts a further strain on capacity in terms of what your employees can imagine. They're really focused on a lot of uh, liquidity and, and shoring up the business to make sure things are, are running. Yes, and, and the timing has been tough, you know, because we <laughs> had to close the quarter remotely and we're publicly traded, so everyone knows how difficult that is normally, and now it's been remote. So, And it, on top of that, we've had to take advantage of some of the programs that the government has put into place, and that is a very time-consuming project in itself. So we've been doing these side projects, which are just as important as closing the book. So it's been a lot of long hours for people but I think everybody realizes their importance, and just we just do it, and, and we're strained yeah. like a lot of other people. But you know that's the nature of the job. Yeah. Uh, question for Sharon. So, kind of given the hiring freeze and the delay we're seeing, how do you think Treasury departments can adapt going forward? Um, you know, I, I think all organizations are really going to be pushed to do less with more, and. You know, when you think about the anxiety um, and uncertainty, a lot of the uh, people in Treasury departments, as all departments will have, 
you know, many people are um, homeschooling their children or have young children around or have other responsibilities to people who need help. So I think it's uh, really important to look at whether you have internal processes that you can adapt, um, look at business cases uh, that, that you may have put to the side to uh, uh, take advantage of uh, digital tools your banks or other suppliers might have to offer and you know just really prioritizing what's the most important work to get done and and what's the work that uh, that can be paused uh, so you can focus on the things that will help your company uh, get through uh, this really unprecedented situation as, uh, as you know as well as you can yeah exactly I think you're the key theme is doing less with more, even more highly concentrated now with uh, the focus that Leanne was mentioning about different projects being equally important as, um, you know, helping the business become viable again. Uh, so we're going to take another a look in, again into involvement of treasury teams again on this human capital side. and. I think one of the major advantages that came away for Treasury Departments from the last crisis, the financial crisis, was uh, having a seat at the table or having inclusion in a lot more departments or internal meetings that weren't there to begin with. And I think um, Treasury has kind of elevated its um, its uh, kind of its prominence in the organization, and that's that's definitely a, a, an insight from that. Uh, that's carried into this this type of a pandemic or crisis and with 78 percent being involved in some type of a task force uh, internal meetings uh, i imagine a lot of it's focused on risk management um, you know just being being a good partner to the business and it's interesting breaking this out um, you know looking at smaller companies and larger companies certainly there's more involvement in smaller companies but uh, it doesn't differentiate all that much on larger companies as well. So I would say that's a, probably a big gain in and of itself. But um, just curious, what um, question for Leanne and, Sh and Sharon, what's different about this pandemic uh, versus the financial crisis in your, in your mind? And maybe Leanne, you can lead off. Sure. And I think for me, um, you know, we're in the, in the small company sector of this, this graphic you have up. And for me, the difference is that because I'm about 10, 12 years later in my career since the last crisis, I now am in a different position where I can help my company and help bring solutions to preserve cash and manage liquidity. So for me, I definitely have that seat at the table that I didn't necessarily have the experience for and the understanding at the time the last crisis came through. So it is exciting for me to see how much companies rely on treasury departments. And everyone on the call knows we have a lot of skills and a lot of information that we can use, as well as a lot of networks and partners with the banks to help us through this. So from my perspective, my company is leaning on me to get these solutions, come to the table with them, and help the company to not only get liquidity and cash where we need it to also help the company to be a, a going concern in its regular environment as we go towards the, the end of the year. So I think that part has been a change for me, but also the fact that you know there's no um, underlying global economic issue 
this pandemic as it was with the financial crisis. So from my perspective, I see the banks and the government have stepped in really quickly to help companies. They've, the Fed has dropped interest rates really quickly. They intervened with monetary policy to pump money into the economy. So they've really stepped up and helped quickly as companies have needed it. The way I saw it from the last financial crisis was, you know, there was there was a lot of these issues where financial institutions and companies um, that were lending to to our industry were under a lot of stress themselves. So they could not open their liquidity purses, so to speak, as quickly as they have to us now. So that's how I'm seeing it from from my seat in, in Treasury. Mm-hmm. And Sharon, how, what do you see different uh, from the last yeah. crisis? I mean, similar to, to what Ian said, I think it's interesting, like 2008 kind of started, if you think about it, with instability in the banking sector, you know, globally precipitating an economic crisis, where here we're starting with a health crisis leading to economic turbulence. Um, and the uh, the speed, so first of all, all the other parts of people's lives that are impacted at the same time, I think, and the and the scope of the number of industries impacted, really no industry not impacted in some ways that all countries um, impacted is is really unprecedented. But I think the speed with which the regulators um, and uh, banking regulators and central banks around the world have responded to the crisis, it's many months faster than it was during the financial crisis. And because of that and how the financial crisis of 2008 turned out, I think it is um, requiring involvement of Treasury teams much sooner in the process to determine which of these programs um, might work uh, for the company. And then I think because the length of time is so uncertain in terms of will there be a, you know, the classic V elongated U, regular shaped U uh, recovery, um, you know, really thinking about uh, cash forecasting and liquidity and how long um, you know, you might need to stay liquid for is uh, is really unprecedented. But everything that I think because in 2008 there's still so many people and companies that were involved in the financial crisis, I think it's easier in some ways for people to um, adapt to this crisis because they had playbooks that were uh, better uh, built out during during the last financial crisis. Yeah, that's a great point. I think some of what we see in this playbook in this pandemic was written from the last uh, financial crisis, definitely. Um, So that's a great point. What I wanted to do was share some insights from what I hear our members are doing. Um, Up to roughly 50% of staff is being furloughed, so taking um, some of the Treasury people out of the function to help control fixed costs and make them variable is, is something that we're definitely seeing. Um, three months seems more typical, so we'll probably see Treasury being fully staffed back again in, in uh, June, July timeframe. Um, decisions are getting made faster. Uh, you know, Keeping safety at paramount and keeping those procedures and controls are very important. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit. 
Um, and like Sharon was saying, it's, you know, when is the return to normal? People are trying to build that into their scenarios because uh, there's definitely going to be a medium term impact, if not longer. Um, and then the other point I wanted to touch on this was the staff throughput and capacity. It seems that a lot of treasury professionals are working um, very diligently, uh, even working remotely, working longer hours uh, to help the company remain viable. But over a longer period of term, that's not necessarily a, uh, that, that probably can't be carried through for the longer term. So, you know, I think when we get through the, the, uh, the next phase of this and people return back, hopefully that'll alleviate some of that. But, um, and the last thing I just wanted to mention was, you know, I think employees are still engaged and their development plans are still in place. So helping them stay engaged and, uh, you know, mentoring can be just as valuable now. Um, you know, so I think communicating and having those check-in calls with Treasury teams is uh, quite effective. It's good for morale and it also helps people realize they're not working in a vacuum necessarily. So, um, so these are these are just a few things that we're hearing from members. Um, you know, just to help cope with uh, with the pandemic and as we get through this. The next area to focus on are working capital impacts and. We start with a polling question here as well. Um, so we know that a lot of checks do plan to go electronic. Um, so for those of you that your uh, or the question is, what primary electronic format do you plan to move your check payments to? For those that want to move or have moved those check payments, um, number one, ACH, EDI. Number two, same day ACH. Number three, wires. Four, some type of a card program. Five, real-time payments. Uh, so, Leanne, I'll actually throw the question over to you. Kind of, what um, what are you seeing? Are, are you moving payments to like moving electronic payments from checks, or, or what's uh, what's the flow happening? For us, we've been moving to predominantly ACH payments over the past two years, anyway. And we write very few checks here in the, the U.S. Uh, we also took advantage of same-day ACH credit uh, a year ago. And that was for the express purpose of being ready for any emergency, although we didn't foresee or expect anything like a pandemic. But we can use this ACH network to provide relief for emergency payments that have to be made. Um, the few, very few checks that we do write are genuinely a nuisance. It takes a lot to get them written and, you know, checks printed have to be done in the office, which means we have to have somebody go there under supervision and make sure they're safe and you have to be able to FedEx them out and that requires somebody else helping. So we do everything possible to avoid paying by check and we'll take any sort of electronic payment that's acceptable over a check. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, so. The the poll is in, um, and I guess I I had expected ACH and EDI to be somewhat of the offset. Um, Sharon, is that maybe where you were thinking, or I guess maybe to the extent you can talk about where you're seeing more uh, electronic payments flow through? Uh, is this is this accurate with uh, what the poll shows? 
Yes, I think for sure um, ACH uh, has a number of benefits and since most clients would have used ACH as kind of a simpler thing to move wire, uh, to move check volume to. I think, you know, Leanne, it sounds like uh, um, your company was on a good um, trajectory towards moving to electronic payments, but there were many companies that even though there's a lot of benefits of electronic payments, fraud mitigation, convenience, cost, um, lots of other things, it had just never really risen to the top of their um, of their priority list for that company might have been expanding or or um, other types of issues they were dealing with. And so for those companies, it's kind of a bigger um, a bigger process for them to to move. And so you know other things we we do see people um, moving to is not off checks, but maybe asking their bank to print checks for them versus printing them themselves. Um, uh, but I think for sure one thing, and, and maybe we can talk more about this later, is there may be an impetus quickly to move to a certain, you know, one of the five items that were in the poll. But I think once we're kind of through crisis time, I'd encourage everybody to go back and talk to their bank and really make sure that they've ended up with their payments split across um, the right uh, payment uh, formats in the in the future. So you might not be at your end state. And then I think uh, decisions will have to be made that once you're back in the office, will you move back to check if you if you moved off it or will you you know keep the benefits of staying uh, staying on whatever payment method you've moved to during this uh, period? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and that takes us into the next slide, actually. the, um, the While we're on checks, maybe I'll just focus on the, the chart in the lower left, um, moving paper payments to electronic formats. Um, you know, we didn't ask the question of, do you think you'd move back to check uh, once the pandemic is over? Um, I guess our assumption would be we hope that would all stay electronic. <laughs> I think that's one of those perennial, per, perennial green, uh, evergreen topics that uh, we prepare for every year at conference and, and always have a session on it or two. It's just moving from paper to electronic as electronic formats have changed and been modified over time. And now we're talking about real-time payments. So. Um, I think it's just interesting that at least 65% of those have either implemented or are planning to um, move to electronic formats. And my hunch is that ACH will definitely be that offset for it. So um, that's, that's a good thing. I think uh, just makes a much more efficient uh, flow. Um, and the top part of the left side on the top chart is the uh, strict compliance with procedural controls and verification. And we'll cover this in a little bit more detail, but 58% um, you know, had implemented very strict procedural con controls. Again, working remotely, you don't want uh, any cracks be exposed in those, in, in those procedures. So you want to definitely have those tightened up. Um, over to the right, the coordinating with the bank or vendor for fraud mitigation, um, at least 55% uh, had either implemented or planning, but 30% had not considered that. And I'm uh, just curious, Sharon, from your um, perception, why might that be or where, what, uh, 
I guess, are you surprised by the 30% we're not considering up, upping their vendor fraud mitigation? Yeah, I, I was surprised. Uh, I hope it means that that 30% already had prudent uh, procedures in place and they've reevaluated that and there's really no need for, for further change. But, um, you know, what I think what you see across the industry is that fraudsters will always take advantage of unusual circumstances. So even if you think you had a very solid uh, process and good staff training, um, you know, we've, uh, when, when we look at the data industry-wide, we certainly see, you know, during holiday periods, um, during M&A, staff turnovers, and, you know, a pandemic, um, it's, it's really important to just revisit and I think explicitly talk to your staff, you know, saying things like, we'll never criticize you for being extra uh, cautious before um, approving a payment. And, you know, we're, um, uh, we're seeing industry reports come out, you know, emails that look like they're coming from your bank, um, emails that look like they're connected to the SBA, TPPP um, uh, uh, process. Um, so these fraudsters are always looking at the current circumstance. And so I think it's a mistake you want to um, speak to your bank and just find out whether you're not doing things that the other banks are doing or whether they may have products like ACH account validation uh, that can help you to, um, you know, decrease your, your risk of fraud. Because, you know, I think it's, it's interesting when you're in a period like this and everything is so stressful and anxious, having to deal with, um, you know, a significant fraud in the middle of all of this would be, you know, super stress, stressful for a treasury team that's already, um, you know, dealing with the things Leanne talked about and maybe working short staff. So um, I, I'd encourage that 30% to make sure there's nothing they uh, they haven't missed. Yeah, that's a great point. Leanne, do you, have you seen an uptick in attempts or are you working with your bank or vendors more to make sure that they're under control? Yes, we've seen an uptick and it, I agree with everything Sharon said that, you know, you have to spend extra time working with your banks, communicating with them, figuring out what is out there that's coming your way because like Sharon mentioned, the SBA and the triple P email BEC scams that we're seeing are unprecedented and this is a difficult time for us. We're not sure really, you know, how the program works and if the information is legit. So we talk to our banks and our, our global banking partners often to try to see if this is coming from them. And I personally have ignored a few legitimate emails from my banker because I thought they were spam. So that's just sometimes the case where they ask you two or three times to do something because you've missed an email. So rather that than send out a fraudulent payment. But, you know, I think this is the time too to just work more methodically and more carefully when approving payments. And like was mentioned earlier, it's about communication. So sometimes your staff are very well trained and they know what to do, but in times of crisis, they just sometimes, well, we all need to be reminded that people are out there trying to, you know, um, scam us and, 
and uh, make these fraudulent schemes work for them. So just take a little bit more time, work with your bankers and vendors, and just be proactive because you know they're they're uh, alert at this time. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the last chart on here that I wanted to highlight was the internal check issuance procedures uh, changes. And essentially, uh, what I'm hearing from members is uh, they might outsource their check printing um, especially for a company in New York City, but their vendor based in New York City, um, you know, obviously with New York being one of the hardest hit areas uh, with stay in place orders and uh, state mandates, um, it's hard to, to get checks issued. And so a lot of companies had to find other check printers or had to take it internally and print checks. And then what do they do about the wet signatures on the checks? So there's been a lot of uh, work around around that, but Leanne, it sounds like for for you guys, since you don't issue a lot of checks, uh, I mean, have you had to change anything in the, in the checks that you do issue, or um, or has it been pretty minimal? It's been okay in the U.S., but we do have one country in Africa where we still have to do manual checks, and we have had some issues and concerns with that because we just don't have the protocols to deal with that when people are not in the office. So those payments are just not being made right now. And if we can't find an electronic alternative to it now, we just have to wait to make payment because the risk of doing it incorrectly is too high for us. So I think sure. being okay in the U.S., but um, there are a couple of pockets around the world we we have some concern. Yeah. As long as they're not a major vendor, I mean, I imagine yeah. that's, yeah. Or payroll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, great. I wanted to explore a little bit more into this question around uh, moving paper checks to electronic. And what I did is I took data from our 2019 um, electronic payment survey that we did last year. and. The red line indicates the amount of check utilization for major suppliers, and the the purple or the dark blue line uh, represents ACH credits, and they were about equal last year. Um, and there's been a convergence in terms of the all all, all around flow. And, and given the pandemic, I, I would I would expect that we're going to see. ACH credits uh, overpass checks for the first time, um, just you know, simply out of necessity, and and I think that's important. I think for for us at AFB, we've been tracking this for several years. Um, we highlight it in conference sessions, and um, so you know, there's a lot of a lot of work that goes into um, the different payment types, and certainly as as we track it, we're going to be interested to see next time we do this if it, if it actually surpasses. Um, the willingness to uh, to move from paper to electronic has always been there as evidenced by the red line here at least almost half would like or are very likely to move from paper to electronic again from from the survey last year and 22% and were somewhat likely. Um, I think a larger, a larger percentage was driven by necessity. So I definitely see a positive trend occurring where we're going to probably see ACH credits definitely overtake checks as a as a payment tender type. 
Uh, and then maybe I just wanted to, to dwell on a few facts here. Um, so the major reasons that companies haven't been able to move to electronic payments off of checks and um, you know, it's it's been the difficulty in convincing customers to pay electronically. There's been a shortage of IT resources. Um, the existing internal processes might be too hard to make changes to, or you can't convince a supplier to accept an electronic payment, like Leanne just uh, gave an, gave an example of. Or there's not a, a standard format for remittance of payment. But uh, Leanne, you know, if I have to look back and or if you had to look back and guess kind of where your barriers have been removed of these different categories, what would you say for the most part? I think for us, it was the IT resources shortage. So that's always going to be an issue, especially in a company my size. But what we did was redeployed resources to help with our IT department. So we have a very agile treasury department that was really you know, enjoys IT and they enjoy delving into these problems. So they worked alongside with our IT department to try take some of the load off of IT to try to figure it out themselves and, and work with our, our IT department and our bankers to be able to make sure that we could make electronic payments possible. And so we could have sat back and said, well, we have to wait for money or IT resources, but we just really redeployed resources internally and did it ourselves. So like you say on the slide, you know, necessity removes barriers. And if we wanted to make it happen, we had to do it ourselves. So we were, we were lucky that we have such a strong team to do that. And then we also um, have really good people on the other side, on our AP department, who never take no for an answer. And if they want to you know, cut down on checks and be able to work electronically. They do everything they can to help our, our vendors through this situation. And sometimes it takes our AP team working with the vendor to figure out how to pay electro electronically and for the other side to receive electronically. And it's, at the end of the day, it's mutually beneficial. So I think we've had those barriers removed just because we had the tenacity to make them happen. Yeah, exactly. And Sharon, I'm just curious, you know, with this rapid shift into digital payments or electronic payments, is there anything that organizations should be considering? Yeah, I'd go back to a point I raised earlier, which is if you made changes, um, you know, uh, in a rush uh, out of necessity, really make sure they are um, and that you've worked with your, your bank to do a careful review of the right split. Like maybe you moved things to ACH, but there's certain payments that a corporate card program uh, can uh, can assist with. So I'd still go back and, and do that work. And I'd also say like it's really not sustainable to have so much paper in the system when you think of what the future of of the workforce might look like. You know, even when things get back to normal, physical distancing is probably here for as long as any of us can think about. And so you're going to have less people in the office. It's going to make staffing and checks and all of those things take so much less plausible. And so I, I think, you know, really setting an aggressive goal for elimination of of uh, based processes and checks is uh, is probably the best way to go. 
Yes, definitely. Um, and and with that, I think, uh, you know, removing some of those barriers, I think we also want to be careful not to open ourselves up for, for other things. Um, you know, fraudsters are being relentless, especially now in these times. Um, one of the most effective uh, ways to mitigate that that we hear from members is through policies and procedures. Um, you know, having that effective tool against fraud to really stay the course and not diverge off of what the policy says or if there is have a have an exception policy to it um, you know especially with back scams or business email compromise uh, spear phishing is just getting better um, you know with social media and working remotely they're trying to expose those cracks so you have to be really careful and close that door um, I'm just curious from your standpoint, uh, Sharon, I know you, as a bank, you probably track fraud. Um, and we talked a little bit about earlier from the PPP programs and some of the other uh, uh, programs and things that are being initiated in response to the pandemic. Where, where do you see a large, what type of fraud do you typically see or where is it coming from? Well, we, you know, we review industry stats. We talk with uh, industry partners. Um, business email compromise is definitely um, uh, a growing area. I've, I've, I've read, uh, and then phishing emails would be another area where um, uh, we've heard, and I think we've all had them in our inbox. I, I read some stats that there's been more than a 600% increase in phishing emails from the end of February, really up to April, and I think that's going to continue. And so really training your staff and also making sure in your systems you have some of those, you know, automatic uh, cautions when you're sending something out, cautions about clicking on links. It's especially hard when you're on your mobile device. You can't always see as much about where the email came from. But really that pausing, you know, before you click, um, one best practice um, that I think a lot of companies are doing is um, conducting uh, kind of uh, tests of their employees uh, to see whether people are clicking on on links that they really uh, should not be clicking on. And then there are some hygiene uh, things you can do. You should be regularly looking at the authority levels that you have for different people. Um, you know, if you have wire authority levels, um, which are many times higher than what you would traditionally uh, use, are those really needed? If you have people set up that aren't often making payments or maybe never making payments, you make sure you review those things um, on a regular basis so that if you, you know, if you do have a business email compromise, at least you can, can minimize um, and then I would say very reg regular uh, reconciliation, setting up alerts um, with your bank so that you get notice of large transactions, reconcile and then reporting um, to your bank if you see any unusual activity are also uh, uh, good things for people to do. M many banks will have pretty extensive um, training tools around fraud and uh, just asking your your staff to refresh themselves of uh, of those types of things, I think, is uh, is very important. Yeah, and I, and I think it's also important to have you know do a fraud checkup, right? So 
look at your accounts, the products you're utilizing, and make sure that you're mitigated against um, you know, different types of fraud, ACH fraud or check fraud, and having, having good um, tools in place to help stop a lot of that. Uh, do you, Leanne, do you ever do a fraud checkup, or do you have discussions with your bank and just make sure you're current with products that are out there and, and uh, you can help mitigate those types of things? Um, yes, we do. We have very good training from our banks, and we also, as a treasury team, rely on the AFP information that comes out regularly. But we also have our internal department, internal audit, and our IT department do testing on every single employee every month with these <laughs> spear phishing wow. campaigns. So it's tough because you know right now we're all busy and there's so many other emails, but it's very important to do. So. We do it internally, and that's not from the Treasury Department, though, that, but it, it's excellent for everyone to be a part of that. But in our Treasury Department, we also, on a quarterly basis, as part of one of our quarterly reviews, is to ensure that we look at the levels of approvals in the banking system um, globally to make sure we know who has approval access and what limit they have. So we try to keep up with you know, what the banks are offering and what new education is out there and just really try to do the best we can on, and stay on top of it because it, it really is our job at the end of the day to protect the company's assets. Yeah, yeah exactly. The risk management kind of mindset to right. really be prudent. And I think you hit on a great, top, great point is internal audit can be a partner through a lot of that as well through places yeah. where they can get to where Treasury can't travel to uh, especially right. a lot of the global locations, they, they have a lot more ability to get there. Uh, and everyone's scared of audit too, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to be on the wrong side of them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Great point. All right, so let's switch over, or let's keep on this same theme, but I think the last topic within working capital is really there's been a huge increase in emphasis on cash forecasting and expanded time horizons. 71% um, mentioned that they've implemented a stronger capacity for cash forecasting. Um, planning has become even more important. Even on our FP&A side of the house, uh, we're hearing more and more from our members that they're doing much more in-depth scenarios, looking at liquidity planning in much more detail. Um, so it's, it's definitely on the forefront and um, you know, I, I think a good question that Sharon brought up in our discussion early on was, you know, how long is that liquidity really needed? Um, we know a lot of companies have drawn down their lines of credit. Um, you know, how long is, you know, are you going to still need the access to that liquidity? Uh, is there a greater focus on working capital efficiency to kind of um, tune into some of that that uh, working capital that's untapped, you know, as inventories tend to go down, uh, how can that turn into um, shortening your cash conversion cycle? Um, so I know a lot of companies are, are working on that and looking at those various um, scenarios. Um, the balance sheet, it seems like anytime there's a crisis, the balance sheet becomes just as important as the income statement. Um, and that's where Treasury excels at is in the balance sheet management, uh, definitely in the asset side of the thing, of, of the um, 
looking at reserves and, and uh, calculating liquidity and, and seeing how long it lasts. Again, as we mentioned earlier, decisions are being made faster, not necessarily sustainable at the pace they are, but um, you know, how much longer can that can that go on? Um, and I think it's maybe Leanne, I can ask you a question about um, looking at working capital. Are you? It seems like companies after a crisis kind of go through and do an internal review to cost out and whatnot. Are you guys looking at working capital efficiencies and all? Yes, for sure. And you know, we're in being in the oil and gas industry, we're hit not only with the COVID crisis, but the current oil and gas issues that are going on. So working capital is pretty much my second job right now. And um, forecasting is, you know, behind employee safety is the next on the radar of importance. And we're having to tone our forecast more frequently. We have to expand the time horizon beyond the usual 13 weeks. So this is something that's very important. It's, you know, it's a highlight of the board and executive management. And of course, we have covenants that we have to always make sure we can adhere to with within the working capital and liquidity needs. So it's definitely in, you know, dynamically updating time for us and everything is changing. So this is definitely on our radar and most important item that we work on during the week. Yeah. Yeah. Sharon, how about you for you know, from what you might be hearing from clients, what what's your what are the perspectives you hear on that? Well, I, I think you're definitely hearing that this is a, an area of stress for for treasury departments because it is so uncertain. And I think at the beginning, people thought, okay, well, once we can go back to work, everything, you know, we, this is how long we have to plan for a change. I think people are starting to realize in many industries this will be a longer-lasting um, situation. And so... You know, there's a, a trade-off in terms of, you know, if how long-term can you go? Can you get some yield of, of uh, uh, in the meantime by uh, by doing that or not? Um, but it's really something, you know, you need to have a conversation um, uh, both at your own executive table but also with your bankers about the different options. Um, and then I, I, you know, I think it's something that's, as, as uh, Leanne said, you're going to have to revisit it uh, really frequently. And you know, now there's a lot of discussion about will there be a second wave in the in the mm -hmm. fall and what will happen in the fall. And so I don't think people want to, um, you know, people want to be appropriately conservative uh, from a liquidity perspective during this time. Yeah, definitely be as realistic as you can. That's definitely a focus we're hearing about. All right, um, we're going to shift gears and go into the last section of the webinar and focus on business continuity planning and effectiveness. And with that, we lead off with a polling question for the audience. Um, are you revising your business continuity plan, your BCP, to include remote working when things return to normal? Uh, number one is we don't have a BCP. Number two, no, our BCP is mostly focused on shifting workload to different locations, plants, IT, etc. Number three, yes, there are plans to incorporate working, uh, remote working into the future. Number four, yes, but still figuring it out. 
um, I imagine, Leanne, some of this, the answers to this probably revolve around the capacity of time you have during the day. Um, yeah. so, uh, and since you know, what you just talked about, safety and liquidity probably being paramount, I imagine this probably is more of a back burner issue. Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think for us, you know, being headquartered in Houston, we've had a, a BCP plan in place for a while because of hurricanes. So when Hurricane Harvey came through was the time when we actually revisited the BCP, put it in to a document, had it approved by IT and, and management so we could work remotely because we were out of the office for over two weeks uh, during that time period. So I think remote working has always been part of our BCP. But going through this COVID scenario right now, we see there's definitely areas of improvement and things that we didn't think about when we put the plan into place. So once things normalize a little bit, we're going to have to revise and look at some more of the risks that have come up. Yeah, great point. Okay, so the poll's in, and the majority of the answer was C. Uh, yes, there are plans to incorporate remote working into the future, and I think that's um, that goes along with kind of what uh, I would have expected. I think there's some great learnings along the way, um, as Leanne just indicated. Um, so what we wanted to do was highlight uh, kind of pre and post, or actually pre-COVID-19. Um, and 62%, uh, keep in mind that this says implementation of a documented BCP. Um, and 62% have, imp have implemented as a result of the pandemic. And 38% said no, they have not uh, put a plan in place. And I think a key differentiator there is they might not have a written plan, but they probably have some type of a, a plan. So maybe it's more informal or, or whatnot. But for those that did have a written plan, 95% found them extremely effective. Uh, and for those that didn't have a plan, Treasury is going to be putting one. 72% uh, said Treasury would be putting one in place uh, in short order, basically. So I, I think it's insightful that um, uh, at least, you know, almost two-thirds or 62% have a plan, um, and I, I think it's well-documented. Uh, we'll break into that in a little bit in more detail, but I, I'm just curious, Sharon, from your standpoint, um, how do you think organizational, organizations, treasury departments have, have fared during this time with their ECP plans? Well, you know, I think probably the main issue our our clients have noted is a lot of people's CCP plan um, was to move from one location to another, at least for those staff that could not work remotely. And I don't think many, um, many of our, you know, we certainly had clients who weren't prepared for the number of clients and or number of employees and number of cases that would not be available. Um, so I think a lot of people are revisiting that um, and and deciding, you know, what what they could uh, do better the next time or or how they should think about um, the spaces. And, you know, as you saw, governments increasingly say work from home if you can, even if the location was very safe. I think you saw more people. Um, 
saying, I, I want to work from home, I feel safer for my family. And I think as employers, it's important for, um, you know, really to be able to to support that and support what the community overall is trying to um, trying to establish. I, you know, I was surprised how many companies said they didn't have a plan in place. And I, I, I believe most actually probably had a plan. Maybe it wasn't in a formal document called the business continuity uh, plan. But, you know, we've certainly seen our clients have continued to be able to um, pay employees who are continuing to work and pay their suppliers. And, you know, we, we like I think many banks have seen record numbers of clients in digital solutions. So, um, you know, I, I think maybe people didn't call it this, but in, in reality, they had um, some sort of plan for how they would work if they uh, if normal operations were interrupted. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point. So I wanted to dive a little deeper into that 38%. And what I did is I broke out by company size and by industry, and almost 25% were in the one to 4.9 billion uh, size company. We didn't break out if it's a public or privately held company. Uh, we just did dollar limits in this in this way. Um, that one to 4.9 billion is actually right in the sweet spot of our membership. That is a, a typical uh, company. It's probably right at the S&P 500 level, uh, typically. So that's uh, and then second category was under 50 million, so a lot smaller companies. But um, and then over to the right, looking at the different industries, um, manufacturing being the number one. Uh, which is representative of our overall membership. And I think something to highlight here was the second uh, largest industry was healthcare and social services. So one of the hardest hit areas in terms of um, you know, the pandemic with hospital systems being inundated with patients, um, being on the front lines and like that. So, um, you know, a lot of those tend to be can be more privately held. Um, and that's, again, it's not to say that they didn't have a plan. It just, it wasn't uh, documented. But um, the good thing is 72% say that Treasury is working on it after the fact. So I think that's somewhat insightful. Um, so what we hear from, from members um, is, is, you know, the redefinition of business as normal. Um, you know, I think we're all trying to figure out when this will be over and when um, when things return to somewhat normal. Uh, staffing levels should return back to that June, July timeframe, um, you know, but that could be extended, who knows. Um, there's gonna be a lot more workarounds for physical office access. I think, um, you know, just having multiple employees in an area, uh, while it's good pro productivity a lot of times, I think it can be, a little off-putting for uh, employees that definitely have a, a, a disinclination or you know are somewhat scared to return to the office. And I think some of the other components to that uh, on the treasury side, you know, just relocating remote deposit scanners, check printing, uh, armored car service, or obsolete technology. Um, I think you know is faxing or faxes still going to be around I think for certain industries it might but um, and I think it, it's going to lead to further digitization or further use into the electronic payment methods um, you know to move to more efficiencies and 
you know, what are other, another thing that, um, the last thing on this slide is the second wave preparation. I think building in scenarios of, you know, if, if things return to normal in August, uh, what do we do if there's a second wave breakout? Um, I don't know, Leanne, or is that anything that you guys are looking at in your liquidity planning, or is that is that too far away for now? I think in a way that's too far for now. We're just trying to get through this current uh, situation we're in. But it's a, it's an excellent point, and you know, it's something that we do have to get to, and there's definitely areas of business as normal that we're already seeing are going to need revisions and workarounds. So it's something that uh, we, we definitely have to get through. We just got to manage our way through the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. Um, we just have a couple minutes left and I do want to get to questions. So I'll just briefly touch on this slide. I think it's important to conduct a fraud checkup with your bank or been payments partners. Um, you know, the relationship management is is key at this standpoint or from this point on, uh, just understanding internally what who your treasury stakeholders are, but also externally as well. Um, and embracing that seat at the table. Um, and a lot of companies or a lot of FP&A professionals are spending a lot of time talking finance for nine financial people, just keeping that engagement and keeping them, you know, finance in the, in the foresight. Um, and then also keeping uh, employees engaged and throughout this process of working remotely. But that's about it on the on the slides. And I wanted to turn it over to a couple questions. Um, there was one that came in regarding: Are there any KPIs you've added or any monitoring more closely during the crisis? I don't, Leanne, I don't know if you guys use KPIs in your Treasury Department or or it can be modified, I guess. To, in other ways as well. Yeah, yes we do. We use KPIs and we haven't added any new ones. We've just more closely monitoring the ones that we currently have to for our covenants and indentures that we have in place right now. So it's a really important part of our job as treasury professionals to ensure that we are looking at at these covenants and we're not about to bust any of them just because we we need cash or we have to take out loans so it, it's it's an important part to look at sure um so i think early on you mentioned a 13-week cash forecast a question has come in um and we talked about expanded time horizons um, what does that mean does that go from like 13 weeks to one year or is that is that 12 months to 14 months? I guess what is uh, somebody's asking a question about kind of the parameters for what that means. Yeah. So so normally we would do 13 weeks at a time, so one quarter. So now we're going out three quarters at a time, and we're having to replan our forecast every two weeks, where ordinarily we would have done it once a month. So it's wow. it's just a, yeah a quicker turn of information, and for us we have verticals all over the world. So it's a lot of people involved with a lot of information that comes to Treasury to consolidate to eventually tell the story. So, you know, it's important to have receipts and disbursement forecasting up front, but in this current period we're in, we have to know our liquidity to the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. I imagine. And that's equally important probably at the board and CFO level and Treasury level. Awesome. 
definitely treasury is much more under the microscope it sounds like all right well that's just a bit uh i think we're a bit out of time here i want to thank leanne and sharon for joining on the panel today i want to thank everyone for attending today's webinar uh, certainly the insights that we have in, into the pandemic. Um, please be sure to check out our COVID-19 website where we're always constantly putting new um, content into that. And certainly we've got another uh, treasury and practice guide coming out on business continuity planning uh, in response to the COVID epidemic. That should be coming out later this month. Uh, again, thank you for everyone for attending and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.